notes open. Welcome, welcome. Um, we are still in our ongoing series on listening carefully to Jesus about different things. And tonight we're going to start talking, and we'll be doing this for two weeks, on listening carefully to Jesus about sin. Who likes to think about sin? Anyone? Oh, we have a few people. I mean, not like that, like, but just more the, the topic, you know. Um, some of you I know, I can tell looking at you that you think about sin a lot. No, I mean, this is one of those topics I found myself, it's, it's hard to even prep a sermon about this. I mean, how do I talk about sin without being a total hypocrite, right? And so I'm just going to start by saying that I do not claim to be without sin. I need God's grace every day, absolutely. And, um, and so as we start talking about this, I, I want that to be the framing because we're going to talk tonight about sort of what did Jesus say about sin as a topic. And then next week, we're going to look a little more about what did Jesus say about sinners and how did he respond to sinners and things like that. But I, I think it's important for us to hear this part before we get there. So I want to look at this story that was just read to us. So again, I encourage you to open a Bible. Um, Mark 1 is where, or I mean Mark 2 is where we're going to be. Um, but I wanted to, to kind of paint this picture of the scene here because Mark starts his gospel. And if you, if you follow Mark's gospel, it sounds like the entirety of Jesus's three-year ministry happened in about a week and a half. I mean, it is like a breathless run. Everything is like, and then immediately he did this. And then the very next morning he did this. And, and so he has this fast and furious thing Jesus goes, he's baptized, he goes out for this 40-day testing in the wilderness, and then he immediately starts coming back and doing this powerful ministry. So he begins announcing, the time has come, uh, again, a, a message of urgency, the kingdom is near, repent and believe. And then the very first thing he does is he calls a bunch of people to start following him, he starts gathering disciples around him. Uh, they go together now to Capernaum, and uh, it says on the Sabbath, so, you know, Saturday rolls around, they've been with him a couple of days, and he's driving out demons, like the enemy is here, and they are being defeated. And then the very next thing that happens is now we're not dealing with spiritual ailments, we're dealing with physical ailments, and people start, sick people start coming, and he's just healing, healing, healing all hours of the day, late into the night. Um, and he gets up and, you know, sneaks out in the morning, uh, early the very next morning, and he's praying, and he's like, we got to go somewhere else, and so they head on, and then this man with leprosy comes, so now we're like, this is not just your average ailment, you know, this isn't like the, sometimes we go to these, like, prayer things, and people are like, I don't know, like, you know, it's like, yeah, someone was, you know, healed of, you know, they could, like, hear a little better, or, like, they said their leg was, like, slightly shorter, but now it's long, you know, it's like, I can't verify any of this. This is, like, a man that is covered in, uh, you know, gross sores and things like that, and by law, Jesus is not supposed to touch him. That would make him unclean. And this man is not supposed to touch Jesus. That would be, you know, a breach of God's law. But what do you do with the fact that Jesus does go up and touch this person and then he's not 
a leper anymore. So it's like, what does the law have a loophole for this? How does this work? Jesus is sort of breaking the rules, um, and yet he's also blowing their minds because he uh, he shows that Jesus's healing power is more infectious than the most infectious diseases that they know about. And so he's healing this guy, and people are still coming from everywhere. And that's when our story starts that that we see that says a few days later when he entered Capernaum, people had come that he heard that he'd come back. So the same crowds that were gathering before come and they gather in such large numbers that there's no room left, not even outside the door. And he's preaching and here come these guys with their friend and he's paralyzed. They've heard these tales of Jesus's healing power. They want to be a part of that. And so they find a way to get Jesus there. And what does Jesus say to this guy? He's like, get up and walk. No, he doesn't say that. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And and obviously the story, you know, goes on that the Pharisees question Jesus, like, what, who does he think he is? And, you know, he can't say that. And then Jesus, to prove that he can, sees us, so that you can know that I have authority to forgive sins, I'll, okay, get up and walk. And he does that. And it leaves them in this conundrum of like, what do you do with this person we think is blaspheming, but God is doing miracles of the likes, not even the greatest prophets of the Old Testament did, you know, through him. So that he leaves them kind of wondering. And I think sin is one of the things that Jesus came to deal with. We see that here. He, he casts out evil spirits. He deals with f- physical ailments of the entire range. And then the very next thing he does is he starts forgiving sins. And I think it's easy to think like those stupid Pharisees, you know, like how dare they question him. But I want you to think how you would react if you maybe went to the doctor because you're sick and she starts talking to you about sin in your life, right? If she implied that the reason for your physical ailment was actually a spiritual ailment, how do you think you would react today? Or you took a friend, you talk a friend that we've got to go to the doctor. You've, you know, so this is, this is, you're not this isn't a cold you're going to get over. Like we got to do this. And the first thing they start talking about is forgiveness of sins. How would you react? See, we live in a culture that doesn't like to think about sin. We don't really like to acknowledge our own agency in sin. I think a lot of times we've, we've gotten to an interesting place as a culture where we sort of want to be victims in situations because if I'm a victim, somehow I'm free from guilt. But the reality, <laughs> the reality is that victims can sin too, you know? And I do think God and the gospel gives great dignity to victims that they did not have pre-Jesus. There was just, you were better if you were on the top of the pile. And Jesus didn't see it that way. And the cross preaches a different message. But the message is not that victims are perfect and victimizers are demons. And this isn't about victim shaming. I'm not saying that all victims are to blame at all or that they've always also done something wrong. 
It's just about human nature. It's case by case, right? God judges us. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 where he's talking about them being taken to court unjustly. But then he's like, but then you turn around and do the same stuff. He's like, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? But as it is, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. You know, we think if someone mistreated us, then it's okay to lie about them. It's okay to be mean back. It's like, no, no, no sin justifies sin in us. Jesus took all of the brunt of that, but didn't sin. He didn't lash back out. See, Jesus didn't rock people's worlds because he came and affirmed everything about them and the way that they were living, right? Jesus gave grace freely, but he didn't give people a free pass. I remember a bunch of years ago, we had a girl in our ministry, and it was just this kind of like, you know, sad story of... Um, you know, she'd come from this very broken family. Her father had been married, I don't remember, a bunch of times. And, and she, you know, started going after this guy that was just like not a very good guy. And the, you know, the different godly people in her life were like, whoa, time out. Like, I think this is, you know, not, this is not a wise decision. And all of a sudden she wasn't consulting them and her great relationship advisor was her father who had been married, you know, umpteen times and I think was currently not with a spouse because he'd been divorced for like the sixth time or something. And, and I remember, you know, someone in this whole thing was like, you're making a foolish decision. And, and she was like, oh, Jesus would never say someone was being <laughs> foolish. And I'm like, what? Like, (laughs) have you read any of the Bible? Like, what Jesus are we talking about? This Jesus exists only in your minds. But it is the Jesus that we often sort of believe in in our culture. We've sort of got a couple of different Jesuses floating around that don't really look much like the Jesus of the Bible, right? We've got the sort of highly politicized, you know, Jesus that's, you know, doing politics, which was not really him. And then we've got this super permissive, sweetsy, benign Jesus that just affirms me and strokes me. It's like, we have to deal with his words, We have to deal with who he was, and we have to see that it was what he did and said the first time that got him killed. They didn't like it the first time around. He didn't change the course of history by having nothing to say about what's right and wrong. No, in fact, he actually came into the world and sort of rearranged the price tags on everything. He messed everything up. He flipped it all upside down. Think about what he said to the Pharisees, uh, and not privately, very publicly in front of everyone. He said, you know, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. These were the, these were the things that grew in the sidewalk cracks. He's like, you're so careful to give 10% of this stuff. And he says, but you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness, the, the weightier matters of the law. But to them, those were not the weightier matters of the law. Clearly, because it's not what they were doing. You know, they thought these rules and these rituals were the most important thing. Jesus made people mad. He shined a light on these things and exposed people. 
Today, I think we've decided that a lot of things that Jesus said are sinful are actually okay. And we think that if we all agree on that fact, that it means something, right? I saw in the, the Reddit thing, you know, we've had those signs out about just the words of Jesus and there was a thing within the last couple of days and it's like, oh, focus thinks divorce is bad now too. And I'm like, yeah, I think most people aren't like pro-divorce, everyone should, you know, it's like, yeah, like, but also we didn't even take a stand. We just quoted what Jesus said, but it is a different message than the one that's floating in the culture. The people in power when Jesus was walking the earth were smart enough to see what he was getting at. And they killed him for it. But we're so dumb that we don't even notice. We don't even notice it's different. I think we're like the emperor with no clothes on. We think God will be okay with us changing the moral laws however we want. Why? Because it's majority rules, right? We're a democracy, and God only gets one vote, maybe three if we're really spiritual, you know, but we still outrank him, you know, we still outvote him every time. But see, Jesus doesn't say, repent because the democracy of heaven has come near. He says the kingdom of heaven has come, and kingdoms imply a king. In defining sin, Jesus did not get more permissive than the culture that he came into. Actually, it was the opposite. He raised the bar. Let's go look briefly at Matthew 5. That was the other scripture that we had read to us. And it starts there in verse 17. You know, he says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. None of this stuff is going to pass away. Anyone who sets aside these things will be least in the kingdom. And then he says, 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of these people that are so obsessed with obedience, you won't enter the kingdom. Now, again, I think he measures righteousness differently than they do. And I think we're going to understand that. But he's like, I'm not saying it's okay to be worse. I'm calling you to something higher here. And then he starts with this repetitive thing of you've heard it said. And some of these are just sort of general knowledge and some of them are direct quotes from the Old Testament. But in each one, he calls them to a very different and higher standard, right? You've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, there's a risk even in your anger. There's a risk in the way that you assassinate someone else's character. You can murder without killing someone. You know, he talks about settling his adversaries, then he talks about adultery. Don't commit adultery. Great, check. Haven't done that. You know, not married, haven't slept with someone who's married. And he's like, actually, <laughs> it starts in here. What are your intentions? What's your heart? What are you planning? He talks about divorce. And here's one of those where it's like, okay, the law says you can divorce as long as you give a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, if you divorce 
except for sexual immorality. In other words, unless the other person has already broken the covenant, you don't need to be a covenant breaker. You made a promise. If they break it, they break it. And I, and I do think that's what he's getting at. Because when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, either that or Paul is just way out of line. Because he says that if your non-Christian spouse leaves you, doesn't say that they committed you know, adultery. He says if they leave you, you're free. So in other words, if your spouse breaks the covenant, that's the only case in which you're free. And I think there's other ways to break the covenant, right? I think abuse is a way of breaking the covenant that we have made with one another. But he's like, but this thing where we can do any cause, any reason, Rabbi Hillel, who had lived not too long before, said if your spouse burned your dinner, you could divorce them. Any cause, that's what they called it. And Jesus actually uses that term here. Whoever divorces his wife for any cause, except for this other thing. No, that's not okay with him. He raises the bar. And what have we brought back? Any cause divorce. Any reason you want, it's okay. And I'm not saying we need to change the laws. I'm saying we need to change our hearts to be obedient to Jesus, not to force everyone else to be. He talks about oaths, right? They have this thing of like, we'll, we're not, we don't really have to tell the truth unless we swear. We do this as children, right? It's that childish. You know, it's like, I can lie, but I'm not going to like swear to God if I'm lying. Or maybe I'll, you know, cross my fingers behind my back or whatever this is. And they had all these silly things. And what does he say? No, your word needs to be yes or no. And anything that isn't just that is evil. He raises the bar for them. All this stuff of it's good enough, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that was... That was the Old Testament law, but they, they misunderstood it. Because even what the Old Testament was getting at is this, is this is the maximum revenge you can take. You know, you don't need to, what, we're, what do people do? We don't do eye for an eye. You know, it's like you take my eye, I'll burn your house down. I'll kill your whole family, <laughs> you know. This is what happens in, in we see it all, all the way back in Genesis 4 after Cain kills someone, Lamech, his descendant, is bragging to people, and he says, I've killed a man for injuring me. So all the way back, they were, you know, this is what humans do. This is how feuds go and how they ramp up. And Jesus is like, no, you've missed the whole thing. I'm just telling you, don't resist people. Don't resist evil. It's not your job. God will take care of all of that stuff. Love for enemies, all these things. And he ends with, you know, just one of the easier commands in the Bible to obey, be perfect, therefore, as your father is perfect. Just be perfect. See, I think he's raising the bar because he's telling us that sin can be in the heart without being visible on the outside. We are supposed to look like God, not just in how we act, but in how we think and feel as well. And that also starts in Genesis when it says that we were made in his image. We're supposed to look like him. Later on, Jesus says, if we can go to Mark 7, if you want to go there with me, 
essentially that sin starts in our heart. It's not just that it can, can take place in our heart, it actually starts in our heart. So Mark 7, starting in verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Now, this is, again, radical stuff because this is a whole group of people who have lived for centuries with very strict food laws and things that it's like, this is how you get defiled. And he's like, I mean, this is, this is bomb-dropping kind of stuff that he says. Nothing can do that. That's not how it works. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. And after he'd left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him, and, you know, are you so dull? I don't know. You know. Sometimes Jesus, again, is very blunt with these people. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? It doesn't go into their heart. It goes into the stomach and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. See, they had it wrong in the sense that they were more worried about eating pork, pork going into the body, than they were these things coming out of the body. But I think we've got it wrong because we celebrate a lot of these things. We've decided that evil is good and often that good is evil. And so you see the way that our culture celebrates sex. But it's us too. I watch these movies and I'm like, why have these people not slept together yet? They've, <laughs> they have known each other at least three hours. And the chemistry is palpable. You know what I mean? We do this over and over again. You know, if we can put a patriotic stamp on it, we're very okay with theft and murder. You know? If we benefit, we're very okay with greed. You know, we live in a country where we have 5% of the world's population and consume over 20% of the resources. Great stuff. Great stuff for us. We're a Christian nation, you know. But this is our, you know, lewdness, envy. We, we find ways of celebrating these things and approving of them. It's what Paul says when he talks about sin in, in Romans 1. He says they not only do these things, they approve of those who practice them. And that can be us. It creeps in. But Jesus says that sin is a heart problem, not a ritual problem. When he's asked about the greatest commands, it's interesting he doesn't quote anything from the Ten Commandments. And he certainly doesn't quote anything about how to do temple worship or food laws or anything. He just says, you got to love God and love people. And then he makes this comment. He says, all of the law hangs on these two things. This is it. This is at the heart of it. If sin is a heart problem, it means that sin needs a heart solution. I remember I, I used to have this house over <clears throat> real close to campus and 
the backyard did not have a sprinkler system. The front yard did. So the front yard looked great, but the backyard got taken over by what you know, we call like Dallas grass or crab grass, those big like uh, circular things. And those things grow way faster than normal grass. They are very powerful grass and very ugly. And, um, and I, I was like, okay, I got to get my yard back in order. I've got to do this. And so what I noticed is that if I mowed and I kept it really mowed, the, the lawn looked decent, right? You know, but it was two or three days out from mowing those things grew a lot faster than the good stuff. And it started looking bad again. And so mowing week after week, month after month, it never addressed the problem. And what I finally had to do, and there were literally hundreds of these things, is one at a time, go out, and I would have to wait until it rained, or I'd have to water and get the ground like moist, and then I would have to get them and just slowly rock back and forth slowly until I could pull those out. And those roots would sometimes be like this long. And I'd have to get all of that thing out. And if I didn't get all of it, next week, there'd be a new circle and a new thing. And I would just go out week after week until they were all finally gone. And that's what we have to do with our hearts. It's too easy to mow. You know, make it look good for everyone else. But God sees what's beneath the surface. And he knows what's going to grow real fast the week you forget to mow. But you don't have energy to mow. It starts in the heart, but that doesn't mean that sin is isolated to me. We affect one another and we can even tempt one another. I think one of the scariest statements that Jesus makes about sin it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we'll look at it in Luke 17. If you want to go there with me, right at the beginning. Luke 17, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. So watch yourselves. Millstones are just these huge round stones. I was trying to look it up, and they're like the smallest millstone imaginable would be like 100 pounds. But most of the time they were estimating, most of the websites and stuff were like, probably like 3,300 pounds would be a millstone. You know, it's like over a ton and he's like, get a millstone necklace and jump in the ocean rather than tempt someone around you. And this should be a sobering warning to us that causing others to sin, causing them to stumble is a really big deal. What are ways, I do want to ask this out loud, what are ways that college students regularly or typically tempt other people to sin or to stumble? What are things you see? Peer pressure. Peer pressure, yeah. Cheating, Cheating? yeah, absolutely. Sleepless so, <laughs> so maybe there's something uh, lewd there, yeah? Say, I'm sorry, say it one more time. Yeah, comparing ourselves. And sometimes we even do that in discussions and stuff like that. So yeah, we incite envy in people. 
parties, yeah. I mean, partying by itself isn't bad, but, you know, depending on what we know is going on or what we pressure people to do, yeah. Textbook piracy. Yeah, there's piracy <laughs> and theft. I mean, again, we, it's like sometimes we do this stuff. It's like sin loves company. They not only do these things, they approve of those who practice them. You know, it's like I steal. Well, it doesn't seem like as big of a deal if all of you are stealing too. So let's, you know, I'll, I'll try and do that. Anyone else? Yeah. Sexual yeah, sexual immorality, trying to, to talk people into this. You know, gossip, slander. Drunkenness, just selfishness, the advice that we give. I caution you to watch the advice that you give your friends. Is your advice godly? Does it put Jesus as Lord over everything? Or are you tempted to dispense the wisdom of this world? Because Jesus gives this sobering warning, don't tempt other people to sin. Don't mess with that stuff. So here's my one point for tonight. When it came to sin, Jesus closed the loopholes and he pointed the finger at our hearts, right? He closed the loopholes and we're good at coming up with loopholes. Well, it's not really a problem if blank. You know, and we've got, <laughs> I was laughing, and I've come across this like twice in the last couple months, but I think it was Lawrence was telling me about um, some Mormon friends saying that at BYU, they have this thing called soaking. Have you heard of it? Yeah, it's terrible. It's kind of this like, oh, well, I'll just like, we're not going to actually have sex. I'm going to put my penis in her and then some, you know, someone else will jiggle us. And then it's not a sin. But again, this is just as silly as so much of what was going on there. I can tell a lie if I swear by the temple, but not if I swear by the altar. I can tell a lie if I swear by, you know, and Jesus is like, God made everything. It's all his, you know, it all reflects him. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He closed the loopholes, the, sim the silly, stupid stuff that we do. And that one may be a big exaggeration, but I've met with many a young Christian person who has been, honestly, half the time they're having freakier sex than most of the married couples I know, but they feel like they're not having sex because they didn't have intercourse. And I'm like, you've done every weird thing that most married couples are like, yeah, I don't know, we tried that once, not doing that again, you know, but you didn't have sex. I'm like, no, you did. That's what you're doing. You're, it's sexual immorality. He closed the loopholes and he pointed the finger at our hearts. It's about what's going on in here first. But he also made it clear that he wasn't just here to point out how much worse we actually are than we thought. John 3, 17 I know we know 3.16, but John 3.17 just says, For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that's what we're going to talk about more next week as we go forward. How did Jesus respond to sin, to sinners? This is a hard teaching kind of a week. But there's good news to come. 
And so let's be like the disciples in John chapter 6. After Jesus is one of his most difficult uh, sermons, the disciples are standing around and they're like, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And a bunch of people kind of drift away and leave and stop following. And Jesus looks at his closest people and he says, do you want to leave too? And they say, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so let's be like them. When we hear something from Jesus, that we stick with them, that we keep walking, that we keep asking, and we say, I don't like that, but where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. Praise team, you guys can come back up. I'm going to pray for us. God, I pray that we would move towards you in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions. I pray that we would not be people who call wickedness good and good things wicked, but that we would let you reform our hearts and minds to see what's truly good and what's truly not good. And I pray for each one of us that uh, we would repent of the things that are going on in our hearts and minds and lives um, and that you would just freely pour out your grace on us as you always do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.